Welcome to the Disney View Podcast. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer. He's a one-time cast member, and he's been to Disney World literally hundreds of times. Listen in as he talks about one of his favorite things, the Walt Disney World Resort in Orlando, and occasionally beyond the Orlando theme park. And now, here's your host. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I'd like to take a look inside the Tower of Terror at Disney's Hollywood Studios. Now, you may not know, be familiar with the history of the uh, Tower of Terror. Yes, it's a fun thrill ride and the elevator drops are kind of cool. But let's go back through its history first before we actually go inside. So take a few minutes with me and let's travel back in time and find out what the backstory is. The Tower of Terror attraction has a lot of interesting richness to its history, partially because of the story that goes into the Tower of Terror and partially because of the Imagineering that goes in behind it and some of the storyline about how the Tower of Terror came to be. If we look back in history and we reflect back on some of the interesting and intriguing ideas that Disney has had and Imagineers have come up with that never made it off the storyboards, there's a little bit of that in here as well. So let's start at the beginning. Disneyland Paris, when it was in its planning stage, had an idea for a runaway mine train that was going to hit a geyser and get lifted into the air and then come back down. The concept was to have some sort of a freefall mechanism that was hidden by the water so that the train could actually lift off the ground and come back. While Disneyland Paris didn't have the budget to complete that, that certainly has a lot of bearing on what actually was produced when they actually did the the Tower of Terror at Disney World. When the Disney Company originally planned for Disney's MGM Studios. And I'm going to have to do a whole podcast about the MGM Studios because there's a lot of interesting backstory there as well. They had planned for a park to compete with Universal Studios. And they had a planned expansion that was going to come later. And that planned expansion ultimately became Sunset Boulevard, where on one side you had the uh, rock and roller coaster, and on the other side you had Fantasmic. So in the middle there was this plot of land that they were trying to figure out what to do with. There was a lot of discussions along the way. They had thought about doing some Roger Rabbit-themed exhibit, but unfortunately with the copyright issues they were having with Roger Rabbit, oh, another great topic for a podcast, I have to tell you, uh, it didn't work out. And then they thought about doing something with the Dick Tracy uh, movie that they had recently produced, except for Dick Tracy turned out to be a bit of a flop, and Michael Eisner was kind of opposed to the idea of having a shoot 'em up type adventure where you might be shooting at some villains or something. So there was kind of a a halt on that. So they had to come up with some other idea. Now, the other thing that was going on was that Michael Eisner wanted to get Mel Brooks to start producing his movies at Disney's MGM Studios. He wanted to make it a real working movie studio, and so he had this idea, hey, Mel Brooks is a famous actor. He and his son Max love Disneyland. What better opportunity for him to come here and produce movies at my park, and we all win. So he engaged Mel Brooks to come in and help plan an attraction for that space. So it was... uh, Michael Eisner, Marty Scalar, C. McNair Wilson, you may remember him when I talked about the uh, SAC uh, back in uh, Podcast 15, uh, and uh, Mel Brooks all sat down and started having meetings about what they could put together to create an attraction that would be fun and inventive. So Mel visited with uh, Disney Imagineers at least six times that we know of and had numerous phone conversations along the way and talked about what the Imagineers came to call Hotel Mel. The concept was to focus on Young Frankenstein, Where is that Frankenstein? 
Anyway, the idea was to, uh, to focus on that and build a Bavarian village and kind of have a, an area where you could go in and have some humorous elements that would uh, maybe have a little bit of uh, mystique to them, but would kind of bring out the, the inventiveness of Mel Brooks. So that went along for a while, and, and meanwhile, Disney wasn't hanging all of its hopes on that. They had a number of Imagineers working on different things. Uh, Bob Weiss had an idea to put in a, a, a 1930s-era hotel that would uh, bring guests in there and maybe even be a real working hotel. C. McNair Wilson and a couple of other guys went out to California to look at old Art Deco hotels to see if maybe there were some in- interesting ideas they can build from there. And, of course, uh, you had some other uh, Imagineers working on other ideas and concepts that might have kind of worked in there. As the concept moved along and Hotel Mel kind of evolved a little bit, it became clear that they were going to build a hotel there. The front half of the hotel might have the actual hotel and maybe have a little bit of comedy element to it. The back part maybe would have a little bit more of an intrigue to it, maybe have a a murder mystery type thing where it would come from the 1930s. Might have some interaction between cast members and guests in some way. Might have a scavenger hunt that went along with it. A number of different ideas. But then at some point, Mel Brooks decided that he wasn't ready, right for this. He didn't think it was moving in the direction he, was, he wanted to go, and he was working on another movie production anyway, outside of the MGM Studios. So he decided to move on and uh, leave the project. So Imagineers were left with their own, to their own devices and came up with a number of ideas to kind of take it further and think about all the concepts they'd already thought of and take them out and, and kind of expand them and make them interesting. So the 1930s-era hotel was certainly where they wanted to go. And the question was, how would they actually implement some sort of an attraction around it and some sort of a storyline that would make it happen? And we return to another thing that never left the drawing board, and that's the fact that Disney had contacted CBS at some point about obtaining the rights to the Twilight Zone series and be using that in some of their attractions. When they opened uh, the Disney MGM Studios, there was a thought about putting some Twilight Zone-themed area maybe where the uh, Superstar Television went or maybe somewhere else. So there was a concept that maybe uh, Twilight Zone would figure in there. And the Twilight Zone property was still available, so Disney was considering using that as potentially part of the attraction. Well, now they had an idea. So they were thinking about what they might do and how they might create it. So they started thinking, hotel, Twilight Zone, what could we do? And then they thought, what about making it something interesting where it's like a tower of terror, something where something interesting happens. There's some backstory that comes in And then you see the the whole process happen, and you get dropped in an elevator shaft. And so suddenly they had something that they thought was a great idea, and they were able to move forward with it. So among the things they wanted to do, they thought an elevator would be an interesting idea, and they turned to Otis Elevator Corporation. Now, Otis had been making elevators for 140 years, and the concept was, in elevator parlance, is that you want to make everybody feel safe as though they're not moving, and you don't want anybody to ever feel like they're in a free fall. So Otis turned their back on that idea and said, no, no, we're not going to help you make a, a free-fall elevator. That's just not going to work. So Disney had to invent it themselves. And this is where Imagineering comes through at its finest. They had an idea that was really clever. You get into a ride vehicle that's completely autonomous. It moves on its own without being connected to anything. And this is a really cool piece of technology because it's got a computer on board, but there's, it's not connected to anything. So it moves across and goes inside an elevator shaft, and then the elevator shaft is a second ride vehicle that actually moves. So there's a couple of interesting engineering pieces to this. And the first is that because it's not connected to anything, this autonomous guided vehicle has to have some sort of a fast charging mechanism that will allow it to move and continue to be charged, even though it's not going to be plugged into anything physically. And uh, Disney had already used that technology to some degree. During the construction of the Universe of Energy attraction over in Epcot, 
They came up with a clever idea to work with Inductran Corporation, who created these fast-charging wireless modules that could then power those vehicles that go through the entire show that's in the universe of energy. And the show there, you know, lasts about 35 or 40 minutes. So they have to have enough battery power to be able to do that and do it repeatedly throughout the day. So it's a really interesting piece of technology that they were able to leverage and put in there. So it's a really interesting thing that they came up with there. Then the other piece to it is they have the these guided vehicles and you go across the fifth dimension and see the people kind of appear and disappear right there. And that's actually using a very simple piece of technology, the same technology you see at the Haunted Mansion, where it's a Pepper's ghost effect, where it's really just a piece of glass that's kind of leaning in and leaning out. And it gives you the effect of, the illusion of, a three-dimensional figure that's actually there, um, but almost holographic. So this uh, guided vehicle goes across that track, then goes into the drop shaft. And in the drop shaft, there's an actual elevator that's in there. And this elevator shaft is a little bit unique. Most elevators have a set of pulleys at the top that allow you to raise and lower the car underneath. This one also has another set of pulleys underneath that allow it to pull the car. So that way they can increase the speed and go faster than the speed of gravity. So the maximum speed these cars can reach is 39 miles an hour as it's being pulled down instead of just being let uh, drop down. So it's actually a very safe vehicle, if you're not aware of that, because it's actually still a pulleyed system on both ends, and it's uh, dropping, but it's also pulling at the same time, and there's some hydraulics in there as well. It's very, very clever the way they've set it up. So the autonomous guided vehicle is completely computer-controlled. It's got different uh, things on board that keep it on the track. There's a uh, double tracking system, so it's got its own little RFID that it's sending out back to the computer to tell it where, it's it, where it is. And there's also a little tracking device along the floor that tells the computer, hey, this is where the car is. So that way they have a, a means of keeping track of where all the cars are at all times. And because of that, it's also got a couple of emergency stop systems. So if a park map, for example, fell off and fell onto the track, it would block the RFID and therefore it would get the Disney-generated 101 error, which is a uh, system shutdown. And the, uh, the system would then stop and it would have to be reset at that point after they cleared that, uh, that map or whatever off the track. And so why it's so important is because there's actually four load areas. If you're in the boiler room, you look across, there's actually four areas where you can load in. They send you across and there's, there's two on one side, then there's a um, sort of a break, and then there's two on the other side. And the reason for that is there's actually two drop shafts. So you go in, you go into one of the four load areas. Those load areas go up. They, uh, they lift you up, and then they go across into the fifth dimension. Then they go into the drop zone. They go back to the load area. So at any time, uh, any one of them can be loading. But you can't have both dropping at the same time. That just won't work based on, the, uh, based on the, how much power consumption it takes. So they're always resetting so that one of them is going to be dropping at any given time. As soon as one finishes, the next one is dropping. But then there's another one resetting and going in there. So it's really important for them to have a sense of where all the cars are on the system so they don't have any power grid issues or uh, draw too much power at any point. It's all very, very clever the way they've set this up. Um, and uh, so these, these uh, ride vehicles are very clever and, you know, all Disney designed, completely new and unique. Nobody has ever done anything like that before. Now, a couple other things to note on the outside of the uh, facade. If you look at the uh, gates that are at the bottom of the entrance to the hotel, the kind of look up at the hotel, those are representative of the ones that are in Hollywood uh, at the end of Beechwood Drive, which is directly below the Hollywood sign. Now, of course, the Hollywood sign was originally used to advertise a place called Hollywoodland, which was a new housing community of hillside cottages that they were planning on building in the uh, uh, early 1920s. So the plaques that are on, the, on those uh, columns there near the entrance are duplicates of the ones that you see on the columns that look up at the Hollywood sign. 
and they say Hollywood Land established 1923. So there's a nice drawback and representation of exactly what Hollywood would have been at that point to kind of give you another piece to that story, that this fits in with the Hollywood theme, that it fits in with being on Sunset Boulevard, that it fits in with the whole concept. And I just think that in in and of itself is very cool that Disney thought that through and really came up with something that was so unique and so interesting. Now, of course, they completed construction on the uh, Tower of Terror on July 22, 1994, and it opened to the public. Shortly after that, it was such a success that they created duplicate versions for Disneyland in California and for Disneyland Paris. Now, the intent was to also create one for Tokyo Disneyland. But unfortunately, the East Orient Land Company was unable to negotiate a contract between themselves, Disney, and CBS for the rights to the Twilight Zone that uh, met with all of their criteria. Uh, remember, it's, a, uh, it's owned primarily by the Japanese uh, private company. So they weren't able to negotiate successfully for a Twilight Zone attraction. So instead, they created something that's completely different. Conceptually, it's kind of the same thing. But the theming is different, and sort of the attraction is different, and the way it flows is different. And that should give you a sense of what the backstory is into how this attraction was built, all the thought that went into it, and all the detail that goes around it. And now let's return to the park and follow along the attraction. And that's what makes the, uh, the attraction so cool. Now what we, we're going to do is we're going to actually go inside, take a look around, peek around, see what it all looks like, how it works, and uh, kind of take a look at the queue. One of the things that's really cool about this is the attention to detail that they put into the attraction. So I want to spend some time and look through the queue and have a little fun with it and uh, tell you some of the things that you'll see, give you a little bit of the pre-show audio, and then we'll go on the attraction. So it looks like a uh, drive up to an old hotel. you got the, uh, the walkway that kind of winds, the way it kind of winds around in front of the hotel, almost as though you were coming in uh, driving your car up to an elegant old hotel. There's a gate that, uh, that opens up. And I'll let you go in. Maybe we shouldn't do this because it says keep out. We're walking along the, uh, the path here. And the, uh, even the way they've kind of set it up, it looks old time with the, uh, the walls kind of crumbling. And you can see where they've stuck it over brick and things like that. And the vegetation is essentially overgrown. Kind of cool. And I have the choice of going to the Bowling Green, the Grand Terrace, or the Natatorium. Well, I think I'm going to go toward the uh, Grand Terrace today. Let's see. There's also the Rose Garden, the Band Pavilion, and the Arboretum. Wow, this is quite the elegant old hotel, isn't it? And then as you look at the hotel itself, my goodness. Just the way they kind of uh, put everything out there, and you can kind of see all the way up. You can see where some of the walls are crumbling and some of the pieces have come apart. You know, it really does look like an abandoned hotel. We have some signs out here for the Olea, Olea Europea, the olive uh, tree. Oh, what's it up? Music is playing. Old time music, Hollywood Towers Hotel. So it was established in 1917 AD, just to give you the backstory about how old this hotel is.
we look out the uh, front, instead of going into the entrance, you can kind of see the, what would have been the uh, balcony outside. It's really kind of neat because it looks kind of old, but it might have been a nice place to sit if the hotel were operating. And uh, you can kind of look out and see the, uh, the grounds a little bit, which is kind of neat. Then as you go inside, you're in the old uh, lobby, and you can see somebody was playing Mahjong uh, over on one side, and there's a tea set set up for service. cobwebs on everything. It's really pretty cool. And there's some interesting detail in the, uh, in the way the Mahjong set is set up. It's actually uh, set up in a way that somebody would have been playing it. I believe they brought in some experts to kind of set the tiles to make sure that they're there. Most people just walk right by it, but it's really kind of neat to take a look at it and spend a minute and just study it. And then the tea service, the way it's set up. On the other desk, on the other side, is the uh, concierge. This is where you have the uh, hidden Mickey uh, with the uh, glasses and the way they're set up. Um, but there's, you know, it looks like it's been sitting there for a while and you've got the uh, the lamp has got a lot of uh, a lot of uh, cobwebs hanging from it. Old telephone, a stamp, some things like that that look like they may have been there for a long time. It's uh, it's pretty remarkable the way they they put the detail into it. You have an ornate chair back behind it that uh, really has a lot of. Um, very interesting detail in it, the way the chair is set up and how much uh, how much is in that chair and just you know the way it's carved out and everything. I mean, this is clearly an opulent hotel. If you kind of look around the lobby a little more, you'll see some other uh, carvings and paintings, tapestries, different things hanging down. Uh, the falcon in the middle, I guess it's a falcon, or is that an owl? I'm not sure. Uh, in the middle, uh, with the cobwebs on it, it's kind of interesting. And the uh, you, know, you got all the suitcases laying here right by the lobby, and you got the uh, the couches and there's there's like uh, uh, coats and stuff hung up by uh, hung over the arms of the chairs as though people had to either disappeared or left in a hurry. Um, we see the registration desk. Um, so it's guest registration and carrier information that they've got there. There's a letter box. You see somebody's uh, coat and hat that are sitting right by the desk as though they had set them down. They put their briefcase down and then set it down, and it's right there. We have the elevator in front of us, and we'll, uh, we'll this is, looks like the old elevator, goes up to the 12th floor. Hi. Thank you. Just looking at the uh, directory here, the standard, the standards room, the mezzanine, high society suite, the penthouse, billiards, lobby level. Okay, so looking at the uh, sign here, the directory, uh, this, uh, the start, oh, the stardust room is on the mezzanine, high society suites in the penthouse. Billiards, the lounge, and the lobby. Uh, billiards, and, billiards, lounge, and library are in the lobby level. Sunset room, the Beverly room, and the fountain room, and the steam baths are in the lower level, along with the gift shop. And then the tip-top club is at the top of the tower. And if you look down the other way, there's a lot of stuff that's going on there. You can kind of look around and see some interesting things the way it's set up. It's cool. back and you see the, uh, the rest of the lobby, you can see what's, uh, what's going on. Ladies and gentlemen, in just a few moments, the library doors in front of you will be opening. Please stand back from the doors as they will be opening toward you. Thank you. So we're in the old 
library. Book, room key, different information is laying around. A trumpet. Very interesting artifacts in here. You really take your time and just look around. It's like, up on the top, especially. Ask me a yes or no question. There's a little uh, device that's up at the top. Sign directs us to the service elevator. So we're down in the, uh, the bells of the hotel now. We're headed around. There's laundry, the maintenance, the basement uh, service is there. Go around this way. So we're down in the boiler room here. Yeah, it's interesting the way they've got the boiler set up. There's the furnace here and all the other stuff that uh, looks very... Uh, authentic for a hotel of this size to be able to heat a hotel of this size you need an enormous furnace of course it's got the cold engines you've got the cold delivery all the things are here very nice trappings of uh of the way it goes uh, this is very clever the way they've set it up it just has a certain uh, uniqueness to it that makes it really kind of interesting so you're down in the boiler room and you're seeing everything that's happening here and it's just it's really kind of neat it's a little spooky too with the sounds the way they go. And by the way, I don't know if you noticed it, when you were watching when you watched the uh, the video that's there with the Rod Serling thing. That's not actually Rod Serling, of course, because he had passed away in the uh, 1970s. But there is a man who looks an awful lot like him and sounds an awful lot like him. And the little girl when she's getting in the elevator, she's carrying a Mickey Mouse doll. So there's a hidden Mickey in that video. Doors close the elevators, the lights fade a little bit. See some uh, lightning happening. Static discharge. Uh, 
course, there's a giant hidden Mickey on the roof in here, too. Thank you. 
word warning. Something you won't find in any guide. The next time you check in with a deserted hotel in the dark side of Hollywood, make sure you know just what kind of vacancy is filling. Or you may find yourself a permanent resident of the Twilight Zone. <laughs> room is pretty amazing. As you look around and you see all the different things that are sitting on the, uh, the shelves and the cobwebs that are there, it's like they were here to repair stuff and, you know, they've been gone for a long time. And there's the switchboard for the, uh, for the hotel. That's cool. And then it's uh, out in the gift shop. Get your photo pick up and whatever else you want. Now, seeing the photo pass there where you could pick up your photo after the uh, attraction makes me realize, you know, it's kind of funny. Uh, Disney is selling these for a, as a souvenir for about 15 bucks if you uh, just want to get the, uh, the download to your photo pass CD. Uh, and then you have the rights to it. Or you can, uh, you can buy a copy of it for like 20 bucks or whatever that you can take home. And then you can buy the frame for it. You know, and different things you can do. And what a tremendous marketing move that is. I mean, you take a picture of you on this ride when your mouth is agape and you're, you're doing whatever. And you see it on a lot of rides around uh, the parks. And, you know, I guess there's good and, goods and bads that go with that. There's something kind of funny about it, but yet it's very clever. Uh, and they're able to make a little bit of extra money in a, in a very subtle way. And I think it's, it's kind of a neat idea. One more souvenir you can take home with you. It's a little pricey, but it's uh, kind of a neat thing, especially if you only get to go once in a while and you want to show off to your friends, hey, look, <laughs> I did this attraction. Here I am on it. Well, that was pretty cool. It's an amazing attraction, the way it's uh, the way it's set up and the things you can do there. Even the way the uh, the facade of the hotel is on the front side, where you would drive up to it, is uh, pretty neat. Because there's the uh, the entrance part. It gives you a nice feel for something really spooky and scary, and just so much detail in the in the way it, it lays out. And you actually feel like you're going into an old hotel. And that's uh, that's actually what it feels like. It's really cool. Very very nicely done. What a tremendous attraction. <clears throat> then, of course, there's always the fun aspect to it, where you're up there and you're uh, riding down on a, on a crazy elevator where you're just uh, being dropped at random times. And that's what makes it interesting. It is truly random. There is, um, no, there is no true structure to it. You don't know what you're going to get when you go through it. And I think that's what's neat about a lot of the attractions that they're building now is that there's a little more variability in them. It's not just the stage I go through and I do the same thing every single time I go through. Now, there's a place for that, and I love some of those attractions, but I certainly get it, uh, why they're doing these, uh, these new ones, because it really is very cool, and it's, uh, it's a lot of fun when, you, when you're able to ride them like that. But that is my podcast for now. And remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. Bye now. Thank you for taking a ride with us on the Dave's Disney View podcast. Show notes, more information about this podcast, and about other great podcasts on the web, can be found at DisneyPodcast.net. Also, you'll find some links to Dave's iPhone applications, 
see and share hidden Mickeys, or organize your pins when you go pin trading. Our thanks go to Craig, also known as Sounda Music. Craig produced the original music you hear in this podcast. You can find Craig's work at ReverbNation.com slash SoundA. Also, our thanks go to Doug at GeekAcres.net for his continued contributions to the show. Now, please gather your personal belongings and watch your head and step as you exit. Show number 104.